Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our guest today is Meredith Harris. Meredith serves as a principal engineer for Rue, an environmental engineer and consulting firm based in Islandia, New York. Rue was founded over 35 years ago and has a strong track record that includes environmental remediation projects like Superfund sites, manufacturing plants, and petroleum refineries. Rue also has renowned wetlands practice that is used by developers across our region. Meredith Harris is a registered professional engineer in several states and a licensed site remediation professional in New Jersey. Her experience and expertise will allow our listeners to learn more about the importance of environmental due diligence in the development process. Meredith, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I'm glad to be here, Tom. Yeah, of course. So when undertaking due diligence on a potential acquisition, developers complete a variety of studies, such as examining the title report, ordering a property condition report, termite inspection, and zoning reports. One of the most important aspects of the due diligence process is the environmental studies. So my question is, lenders typically require a phase one environmental asset. Can you please explain for our listeners what a phase one is and its importance in the due diligence process? Yes, a phase one is a desktop evaluation of the environmental conditions on a property. So we perform a site inspection, we interview site owners and operators, review various environmental records and databases, and you know, and then we look for site clues that suggest that there's environmental issues or problems on the site. Ultimately, what we're trying to discern during a phase one environmental assessment is if there's any recognized environmental conditions or RECs, as they're referred to on a site. RECs are defined as really the presence of a hazardous substance on a property that have already been released to the environment or will likely be released into the environment. And performing a complete phase one environmental site assessment affords buyers certain future protections under federal regulations, particularly if you find contamination after the property is purchased and you begin development. And then my next question is, cash buyers can choose to close on a property without having a phase one report completed. What would your advice be to folks who are thinking about buying a property without completing any environmental studies? No, don't do it. (laughs) So that's a simple... Uh, (laughs) Environmental problems on a property are not always easy to see. They're almost never easy to see. Most environmental problems are occurring under the ground. You think of leaking oil tanks. So you really need a trained eye to observe the site and review the related environmental records. Environmental investigations and cleanups can be really expensive. So if you purchase a property without doing proper environmental due diligence, you may not have any recourse later to recoup those costs. We've certainly seen a lot of cases where a property is purchased, there's no due diligence, and the clients call us after the fact because, say, they ran across petroleum impacts from leaking tanks when they started doing their site work and, you know, they get their excavation equipment on the site and start digging. A simple tank removal will run in the tens of thousands of dollars, even if it didn't leak, and a lot of them leak, probably more often than not. So running into environmental problems during your development activities will really severely impact your schedule and your costs. 
if you do the due diligence ahead of time, you have a much better chance of identifying the environmental problems and planning for them or walking away from the deal if they're too complicated. So what happens when it leaks and you have to take out the surrounding contaminated soil up to a certain amount? Is that correct? Yeah. You know, once the tank comes out of the ground, you have to, you know, dig up the dirty soil. You've got to collect samples to make sure that you got it all. And then when things can get really, really complicated is if you've also contaminated the groundwater. And, you know, groundwater is moving, so the ground, dirty groundwater could have migrated onto somebody else's site. You might have to put injections in the ground or do additional investigation. So the groundwater is the part that can get really, really expensive if that gets away from you. Yeah, so it sounds like the cost really creep up. And especially if you've done no due diligence, it seems to be a much harder, we'll say, pill to swallow than if you were kind of expecting it. Is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. So it sounds like the phase one report provides protection under federal guidelines. Are there any studies that are specific to New Jersey? Yeah, so New Jersey's you know, version, if you will, of the Phase 1 Environmental Site Assessment is referred to as a Preliminary Assessment, or a PA. And while the Phase 1 Environmental Site Assessment provides certain protections on the federal Superfund program, a Preliminary Assessment in New Jersey provides certain protections under the New Jersey Spill Act. A preliminary assessment and a phase one have many overlapping components, but they are different. Environmental issues under a preliminary assessment, rather, in a phase one, we're looking at wet. In a preliminary assessment, we refer to them as areas of concern, and there's really less professional judgment involved. Areas of environmental concern under a preliminary assessment are basically defined in the regulations. So... Preliminary assessments for property transaction due diligence are very much recommended if you're in New Jersey, and I would argue more important than phase ones in New Jersey. And they don't have to be performed by a New Jersey license site remediation professional, but they often are, and it makes sense that license site remediation professionals in New Jersey will have the most experience in performing preliminary assessments. Okay, so I have two follow-up questions. Would a lender want to see a PA or a phase one or both? You know, most commonly, I don't think I've ever run across a situation where the lender required a preliminary assessment. The phase one environmental site assessment is the go-to for, for most of the banks that we've worked with. What we'll often do for clients is we'll do a combined phase one and preliminary assessment so we can satisfy the lender and, you know, give them protections under the New Jersey Spill Act. And because they have so many overlapping components, that can be done in a pretty cost-effective manner. And then under the right circumstances, then right. they're combined into a single report at the end of the job. And then you kind of touched on this. Can you tell us more about the LSRP program, what they do? And I understand the program had a shift since it initially started. Yeah, so in I think the legislation was passed in 2009 and became effective in 2012. And the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection overhauled the site remediation program because there was such a backlog of environmental cases. In addition to making big changes to the site remediation regulations, they created the License Site Remediation Professional, or LSRP, program. So individuals that meet certain education experience, or I'm sorry, certain education, qualification, experience levels in the field doing work in New Jersey, and then there's a test that you have to pass. 
And if you meet those qualifications, you can become an LSRP. Thank you. So now the LSRPs, rather than the New Jersey DEP case managers, oversee the investigation and cleanup activities at most sites. The upside of the program is that environmental sites get closed out a lot faster than they used to. Under the old program, it wasn't uncommon for cases to drag out for 10 years or more. And under the 2012 Site Remediation Reform Act, sites can really get cleaned up as quickly as the client and the LSRP can move the process along. So, you know, that's the upside of the program is you can get it cleaned up more quickly. Mm -hmm. The downside of the program is that, you know, clients are spending their money at a faster clip than they used to under the old program. Right. Because the Site Remediation Reform Act incorporated statutory timeframes for completing the different phases of the investigation and remediation. And then, you know, the second part of your question in terms of how it's changed, you know, as would be expected in any new program with this many regulations and guidance documents that DEP has, you know, the LSRPs, the regulators, the responsible parties, there's definitely been some push and pull to find balance in the program. Mm -hmm. And for straightforward sites, the program has been great, and LSRP can get you in and out of the process really quickly. Really, for more complex sites that have a lot of environmental areas of concern, that have, say, ecological risk assessment issues, there's still often a lot of DEP involvement in certain aspects of those projects. And actually, the first major set of changes to the Site Remediation Reform Act is sitting on the governor's desk now. Um, and, you know, the changes are not sweeping. The program is still largely intact, but they're including some updates and clarifications to things that were confusing before, you know, things that have to do with notifications to municipalities, a lot of things that have to do with the LSRP oversight responsibilities and immediate environmental concerns and things like that. So are these good changes that are on the governor's desk, generally speaking? I would say it's a mixed bag. Okay, just like anything I, else. Yep, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and, you know, with any of these, anytime this kind of process happens, DEP tries to bring multiple stakeholders to the table. So, you know, that may include... Yeah, that's going to include the development community, but that's also going to include, you know, environmental organizations and the folks who are pushing for as rigorous a program as possible. So it's almost always a mixed bag. Right. So you got to somewhere, you got to meet in the middle because you're going to have the developers that want it kind of loose, but then you're also going to have the concerned citizens, we'll call them, that want it really tight. And you got to kind of satisfy both people. Is that safe to say? You bet. Yeah. Awesome. So. In addition to the required on-site work, you kind of hinted at this, there seems to be a lot of desk work involved environmental reports. Where does that data come from for these reports? And are there any database accessible to everyday people like our listeners? Sure. So, you know, much of the information that we use for environmental due diligence comes from documents that we received as part of Freedom of Information Act requests or special environmental databases. But New Jersey DEP offers two really helpful tools that are available to anyone for free. You just go online and you can look at New Jersey GeoWeb or New Jersey Data Miner. And so these online resources can allow you to quickly look up us by name or by the address, or you can pinpoint it on a map, and you can determine quickly whether a site is under any DEP regulatory program. Yeah, so I was recently reviewing our PA, and I found the Sanborn maps and historical area views really interesting. Could you walk our listeners through what Sanborn maps and historical area views are and why they are important? Yeah, 
and looking at the old aerial photographs and sandborn maps, I think is the most fun part of doing environmental due diligence. The, the aerial photographs are just that. They're photographs that are taken of the land from an aircraft. So you have a bird's eye view of what's happened at a site over time. So we may look for things like the addition of buildings or above ground tanks. You may see scarred or disturbed earth that could be indicative of a dump area. You may be able to see widespread stress vegetation in an aerial photo. And then the sandborn maps are basically maps that were used by insurance companies back in the day to determine the degree of fire risk at different sites. The sandborn map coverage isn't available everywhere, but a lot of U.S. cities have them and also some places in Canada. And the coverage goes back to the 1800s. So you can see what was going on in a site, you know, typically in an earlier time period than when aerial photographs would have been available. And the sandborn maps are super helpful in determining potential environmental conditions at a site because you can see things like what type of business was conducted at the site, how many buildings there were, their uses, the presence of tanks and storage areas. And again, this is information going back to the 1800s that you wow. might not otherwise have access to. One example is there's a site that I'm working on now that had a very long industrial history, and we were able to tell from the Sanborn maps that there was a foundry there back in the 1800s, so we know that there's probably metals contamination on the site, and we know to look for that. Wow, that's amazing that it goes that far back and we still have access yeah. to it today. Yeah, they're really fun to look at. Yeah. Um, so I understand that every project and every site is different, but sometimes you'll see area of concerns in environmental reports. What are some area of concerns that are common in New Jersey? Sure. So the types of areas of concern that you would expect to see at a site obviously differ a lot based on the historical and current site uses. But some examples that you see frequently are historic fill, above ground or below ground storage tanks, floor drains, sumps from and chemical storage areas. If you have material loading and unloading areas, say by rail car, landfills or just low spots on the property where there may have been disposal. You know, and even garbage dumpsters are initially considered an area of concern on a site. So how are these areas of concern handled when identified? Is more testing required on all of them? Not necessarily. Once you identify the area of concern, and again, in New Jersey, the areas of concern are kind of statutory. There's a definition of area of concern in the regulation that lists all the features that kind of automatically get considered an area of concern. But at that point, then the environmental professionals, you know, can, you know, uses their judgment based on the documents and their observations, whether additional testing is necessary. So one example would be there was an underground storage tank that existed at a site. So that would be called out as an area of concern. But maybe you've got really good records that indicate that the tank was properly licensed, it was removed, and it received no further action after it was taken out of service, and there was no soil or groundwater cleanup that was needed. You know, an LSRP or your environmental professional, you know, will probably look at that and decide that all the paperwork is there, everything looks good, and no additional sampling is needed for that. On the other hand, you may have an AOC that was called out, say, a rail unloading area at a facility. You know, maybe you went to the site and you see dead vegetation and you see staining on the soils in the area. 
in that case, you would probably recommend sampling to determine if the soils or groundwater were impacted by materials that were spilled on the ground during unloading of the rail cars. Wow. Yeah. No, thanks for the information. That was a great answer. And so when a buyer finds an issue with a property during their inspection period, they have a few options. They obviously can walk away from a deal, renegotiate the sales price, or move forward with the transactions. What value can an environmental consultant add to this decision-making process? So if you're still in your due diligence period and you encounter environmental issues on the site, There's two really important things that your consultant can help you with. The first is just to understand the scope of the investigation or remediation that might be required on the site. And then the second thing is estimating the cost of that investigation or remediation. You know, maybe the contaminants present at a site aren't compatible with what your plan development is, so it doesn't make sense for you to move forward with the sale. Or you may be able to utilize the cost information provided by your consultant to negotiate an escrow that's set up by the seller to pay for the environmental cleanup work. That's a mechanism that we see commonly in these transactions is, you know, either the property price will be negotiated down or an escrow account may be set up. And then the seller, so the current property owner, and most times you said they'll put money in an escrow to pay for the environmental cleanup? Yes. Okay. And, you know, you have to decide on how much money goes into that escrow. So that's where your consultant can really help you by estimating how much the investigation and the remediation might cost at the site. So outside of that, what are some other benefits of having an environmental consultant on your team during the diligence process? You know, if your investigation or cleanup work has already been done at a site that you're thinking about buying, Your consultant can review the documents prepared by the seller's consultant to make sure there are no gaps in the work and that the work meets all the regulations. And your consultant can also help you figure out how to incorporate the cleanup of the site into your development plans, if that's appropriate, depending on what your final site use is. One really common example that we work with all the time is if a site has historic fill that just needs to be capped, to prevent it from, you know, eroding or coming into direct contact with people or the environment, your consultant can work with your civil and site planning engineers to utilize the building foundations, the parking, the landscaping areas, the protective cap systems that still meet the regulation. So that's another thing that your consultant can bring value to your process for you if you have a site that does have contamination on it. So for those of us who don't know, can you explain what capping is, the process? Yes. So on some sites, you know, you might have fill material or contaminants that are really widespread across the site. And, you know, if you have a site that's 10 acres and you have fairly low-level contaminants, but they still exceed the cleanup standards across your site, you don't want to have to dig up that entire site and take that to a landfill and dispose of it because that's going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars because it's so big. So what can be done is a protective cover system essentially can be installed, prevent direct contact with the contaminants that are in the soil. And, you know, cover systems, they might be vegetated soil, they could be concrete, they could be pavement, and there can be all kinds of cap systems. But the idea is that it prevents direct contact and prevents that dirty dirt eroding or blowing around in the wind. So what are some things that you would recommend that developers look for during their site visit? Are there any immediate red flags that you'd notice from an environmental aspect? Certainly tanks are the most common thing. 
If you're walking around on the site, you might see fill ports for tanks. You know, ask the seller if the property is or ever was heated using oil. A lot of this can happen with underground storage tanks and the filling process for the tank. And there's some other red flags that you may see just from walking around. Could be stained soil or pavement, dead vegetation, or drums of chemicals that are being stored. So some people will see a piece of undeveloped land and think, oh, we can buy this and build on it. But that's not always the case. What are some land conditions that could pose a problem to developments that aren't really visible to the naked eye? Yeah, unfortunately, most major environmental problems are not obvious because they're occurring underground. And there's rarely this steaming radioactive goo that's an obvious issue. <laughs> you know, when you think about historic fill, historically applied pesticides on a farm field, leaking underground tanks, dry wells, leaky sewer systems, those are all common environmental conditions that you really can't just observe from walking around on a site. So wetlands pose a risk to site development. Can you please explain to our listeners what wetlands are and how they can complicate deals? Yeah, so wetlands are defined as areas that generally meet three criteria. They have vegetation that's adapted to growing in a wet, low-oxygen environment. They also have soils with characteristics indicative of a wet environment. And then they have certain hydrologic conditions, such as a high groundwater table, fluted tree trunks, or standing water. And any activities that disturb wetlands are regulated in all states. And then in New Jersey, the buffer areas around wetlands are also regulated. So if you're clearing vegetation, doing earthwork, erection of structures or pavement requires permits, and most of the time, the wetland disturbances need to be mitigated or restored, and that can be quite expensive. So the presence of wetlands can really reduce the area of property that can be developed. So it's important to understand if and where wetlands exist on a property before you purchase. So Meredith, I'm on the other side of a lot of people. We're developers, and you know, New Jersey some people believe has a pretty tough reputation for environmental regulation and the development community. Do you think the state has governed this fairly or do you think they earn their reputation or are the developers mm -hmm. just complaining? So the state of New Jersey definitely has a complex and rigorous set of environmental laws. Now, I would say that California is probably the only state with tougher environmental regulations than New Jersey. And, you know, New Jersey has an interesting set of circumstances in that we have a long industrial history. We're the most densely populated state in the U.S., and we have many, you know, environmentally and economically important natural resources like the Atlantic Ocean and Delaware Bay coastlines. So, you know, with that kind of winning trifecta, if you right. will, um, really means tough regulations for developers to navigate in the state. Well, that's good. So it sounds like you know, it's kind of warranted, you know, given our geographical location and our history and, and other things like that. So, yeah, and you know, it's like anything else, it's about finding the right balance. And, you know, the interesting thing about these sites is for every site that warrants development or has contamination, the set of characteristics on every site are just completely unique to each site. So it's hard to have a set of regulations that adequately addresses all of the different sets of characteristics that can happen on a site. 
So that can make it a real challenge because, you know, the state of New Jersey, in addition to the regulations, I think there's like 30 or more guidance documents that are out there, too, that the state expects you to adhere to when you're doing this work. So it's really a tough balance to strike. So New Jersey seems to have a ton of former industrial sites that are now referred to as brownfields. How does Rue assist clients who are pursuing the redevelopment of brownfields? Yeah, so, you know, we can really work with clients through every phase of the brownfield redevelopment process. You know, early on in the process, we can perform the environmental due diligence, both the phase one or preliminary assessment that we've been talking about, as well as the phase two sampling work to determine the nature, extent, and likely cost of the full investigation and remediation. We can delineate wetlands, perform threatened and endangered species habitat surveys, and, you know, identify ecologically sensitive areas on a site that may limit the amount of space that you can develop or that will require permits. We can work with developers during the negotiation phase and assist with their funding applications. We can actually implement the investigation and remediation activities or if those activities are being performed by another party, we can provide review and oversight to make sure that the developer's interests are being preserved in the process. As we spoke about a minute ago, we commonly work with the civil and site engineers to integrate the remediation into the final development. We can get environmental permits for the developers, providing construction oversight, and doing environmental reporting or operations and maintenance in situations where long-term care of a remedy is needed. I got you. So the list goes on and on, which is great to hear that you guys (laughs) offer so much. So now let's switch it up a little. We've been talking about environmental due diligence from the commercial side, but let's flip over to residential. When we buy homes, we always have the property scan for an underground storage tank because a leaking tank could be an expensive problem. Do you have any helpful tips for folks who want to buy for folks who want to perform environmental due diligence on a potential home purchase? Sure. Certainly, underground heating oil tanks are the most common expensive environmental issues in residential transactions. But other environmental concerns that home buyers may want to think about are asbestos, lead-based paint, on-site septic systems, well water quality if you have an on-site drinking water well, And in some areas, you may need to think about radon because that's a concern depending on what part of the state you're in. Meredith, thank you for your time. How can listeners get in touch with you to learn more about Rue? Thanks so much for having me, Tom. This is really fun. You can check us out on Rue's website, www.ruxinc.com. And you can also reach me at mharris at rueinc.com. And uh, my phone number is 856-423-8800. Thanks, Meredith. We appreciate your time today. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Tom. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.